All right. So uh, we're going to do something um, this month I love to do in October's. Um, in October, October is a, well, it might as well be Church History Month. And uh, because October 31st was the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. And so I always like to take October as, a, I call it Reformation Month or Church History Month, however you want to look at that. And so I love to take time in October and um, get my technology working. That would be amazing. And so, um, and, and just kind of remember where the church has been and uh, hopefully where it's going. I'm sorry I'm having problems, Anna. I mean, Hannah. It's okay. Well, I'm just going to have problems. Thank you, Jesus. So, um, what it, I, let me begin here. We're at a stage in history that's a little challenging as believers, I think. And uh, most of us are really probably struggling with what's happening in the political climates of the world and, and those kinds of things. And what happens is because humanity basically has a short memory, um, we tend to think that our times are the worst times and that it's never been this bad before. And uh, I want to help you beyond that. I want you to know that you are not the first Christians to endure challenges, one. And I want you also to know uh, that there are those who've gone before you. And for this series, I'm calling them the game changers. They literally changed the game. And the church that you're a part of today, whether you struggle with it or don't, and all of us, if you honestly follow Christ, you're going to struggle with a lot of things, and church is one of them. The Bible's another one. And uh, so as, as you, uh, th there are these people who came along and they opened the door, paved the way for what we get to do this morning and for what we understand about God, about grace, about love. These people opened the door and showed us the way. Some of them did not even enter in themselves, but they started something that is still going on today and growing stronger and more powerful every year. If you want to know how the church is doing, don't watch the news. Ask, yeah, go ahead. You can applaud that. I'm not saying I want you to be a, a, a culturally ignorant people, uh, so don't read me wrong there. What I am saying is this. Jesus is never going to get the press that the devil is. How's that? And so... You're going to hear, you'll hear a lot of things in your world, and I just want you to think of, I want you to know there's a lot more to the story. Woody Allen, uh, that pagan theologian, <laughs> said, history repeats itself. It has to because nobody listens the first time, and I think that's probably accurate. So, <clears throat> over 500 years ago, 600 years ago, the church was in a mess. The Catholic Church called that time period starting about 1305. Anybody around for 1305? I always like to ask. Just I don't want to offend anybody. Neil, Neil, that's <laughs> first first Rolling Stones album. They use real stones. Uh, <clears throat> 1305. There was uh, the Great Schism. The Church, uh, the Catholic Church, calls it the Babylonian captivity of Catholicism, and uh, the the Pope split, so to speak, not the actual person, because that'd be nasty, but he, there, we went from one pope, the Vatican and Rome, to moving to France, and we had two, and then at one point in time in that 70-year period, because this lasted until about 1377, there were three popes. All three of them claimed to be a direct descendant of Peter, 
and all three of them claimed the other two were the Antichrist. So you can imagine how fun that was. I mean, before Twitter and all that kind of stuff, you had this, this, this going on in the church. So just imagine what it would be like. You don't have the media you have available today. Most of your news is hearsay. And you can imagine how confusing that would be to a main, mainly agricultural society, getting news second, third, 50th hand, and, and not knowing what's going on at all. But that was the state of the church coming up on the end of the Dark Ages. And it's interesting to me to note that the Dark Ages ended with the rise of God's Word. It was God's Word that opened the door on reason and the age of reason, what we came to call the modern age. Began to challenge things in the world. It's amazing to me, although the Bible will never get credit for that in your current history books, the reality is it was God's Word that began to open people's mind to light and to reason. And so you have some guys. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get into Martin Luther today. I've taught on him in the past, and, and if you miss those, sorry, should have been here. Um, but I want to I look at two guys for just a second and two other guys for just a, a, blip, just a blip that started what I'm going to call for today four streams that merged into Martin Luther's action at the steps of the Wittenberg Church on October 31st of 1517. Sorry, my dates there kind of cramped up. It happens sometimes. The church was in a bad way. You had multiple popes. You, they were raising money through these strange methods, uh, indulgences, so you could buy forgiveness. So that'd be kind of cool, right? If you had money, you could like murder someone and like give money and bang, you're good. Your uncle was mean. Never mind, it's a long story. We won't go into that. A practice of simony that comes out of the Bible. In um, there was a, a false prophet guy named Simon in Acts who tried to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit. And so the act of buying for uh, buying roles in the church, buying clergy ordinations, and all those kind of things is called simony, and uh, that was rampant in the church. The church was the wealthiest thing on the planet in the 1300s going into the 1400s, they contained one-third of the wealth and yet paid no taxes or any of those kinds of things. They, they were just kind of, it was not a good time. It was not a good time. And so in that environment, you, you come across this guy named John Wycliffe. He was going on during this, this schism of the church, the three popes. He didn't care. He was like, ah, they're popes. They're, they don't have any control over me. And uh, so that was a radical way to think, actually. And so John Wycliffe had this belief that if you could get God's word in the hands of people, the average person, that God's word could do way more than the church could do for them. And so he began to translate the, the Bible, which at that time all they had was a Latin translation. It wasn't a very good one. I'll throw that out there. And so he translated uh, from Latin into the common uh, language, uh, a translation of the Bible. And these followers began to follow him. They, they came to be known as Lollards. That was a tome of derision. That was not a, you didn't want to be called that. You know, it's like being a jerk, but a religious one. He trained these guys to preach, to refute certain doctrines. Uh, transubstantiation, the one where the communion actually becomes the body of Christ. Um, he taught them to lay down their lives for their faith. He taught them to live simply. And he also taught that the only person who had a right, or, or not a right, but had, should be entrusted with the responsibility of serving in clergy were righteous people. 
Because you had this divide between clergy and laity at that point in time where the clergy were above the law, so to speak. They did whatever they wanted. They did some horrible things, but they were not under civil law, and they got away with it. The people knew this, and they were like frustrated by it, but they had been taught that the power of God was in the ritual, and so they, they didn't know what else to do. And so you got a guy named John Wycliffe comes along and begins to try and get the Bible into people's hands. Now, this is before printing presses. The printing press wasn't invented until the 1430s. So this is almost, uh, John Wycliffe's like 50, 60 years before it's even invented. And in that time period, how do you, you know, tra- how do you get the Bible to people? Well, you write it by hand, and that's what the Lollards did. And they worked at it so diligently that there are today 170 copies left of John Wycliffe's Bible that he translated. Left today. And this is after like 100 years of the church going after it, trying to destroy it, rewarding people for turning them in. That's how diligently they worked to, to move the Bible from Latin into a common language. And it would take them 10 months, 10 months to make one copy That's how dedicated they were. There were still Lollards around 145 years later when Luther kicked the flames of the Reformation that started with John Wycliffe. And then right after John Wycliffe dies, by the way, he was condemned. The church was going to kill him, but he died first. They got so mad, they dug up his bones and burned those. They wanted him really dead. See, following Jesus is always popular. (laughs) Anyway. Then you have John Huss comes along. John Huss was cool with uh, the trans substitution thing where trans, it's that trans thing. Anyways, no, that's wrong in our culture. I better not say that. Let's say the thing where the communion actually became the body of Christ. But the problem was at that point in time, the church did not allow the average person to participate. They got to watch the priest do it. And so he was not okay with that. John Huss was really big into uh, the doctrine of the church. So Wycliffe was all about, let's get the Bible out there. And John Huss was, let's fix the church. And he was condemned. Then he was tricked into coming to a a council, a trial type thing, guaranteed safe passage when he got there. Basically, to make a long story short, they burned him at the stake. He said at that burning, he said, you can cook this goose, by the way, Huss, and Czech means goose. It says, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years a swan shall rise. And about a hundred years later, that's when Luther nailed the thesis to the door. And so that's, that was John Huss. He brought along his thinking about the church. So Wycliffe, the word of God. Huss started to change people's thoughts about the church a hundred years before it was cool, long before there was a printing press. Two other guys real quick. Erasmus. What he gave us, by the way, his dad was a priest and his mom was a nun. So, yeah, he probably had issues, I'm thinking, okay? Um, Erasmus gave us a Greek New Testament. So, before that, the Bible was translated from a Latin uh, uh, full Bible that was a translation of the Greek. So, Erasmus gave a a better Greek New Testament. So, Erasmus, though, was all about reason and intellect and then the fourth guy is one that you won't hear much about even in reform studies or church history studies at Savonarola. He was a Christian. He believed the gospel, but his issue was social reform. So he didn't actually preach the gospel much. He was trying to get things fixed on a social level. That was his focus. 
Uh, if you want to read his story, his, his martyrdom was a total debacle. It was a nightmare for sure. It's an interesting story on its own, but I'm not going to go into it today. But the issue that he brought forward was social reform. So here's the thing I want you to think, remember as we, set, as we move into this series. Before the Reformation, by over 100 years, you have God opening four streams that are going to merge in this crass, crude monk named Martin Luther. You can spiritualize Martin Luther all you want, but I guarantee you no one here would like him, okay? I just want you to know that, okay? But I thank God for him. But he was a German. He drank too much beer by his own admission, and he had flatulism that is famous. How would you like to be known for that? So I'm just telling you, you can spiritualize it. You can make church history look pretty. I, I'm not about that. God started four streams. The first was God's word. The second was his church, the doctrine of his church. The third was reason and thinking. And the fourth was social responsibility and reform. Up until Luther, everybody was trying, for the most part, to stay and work within the confines of the Catholic church at that time, what they were dealing with. But then Luther came. And Luther didn't just chuck it all in the wind. If you read his story, he struggled with what happened. But in the end, he realized that it could not be reformed and something else had to be begun. Does that make sense? These men, many of them laid down their lives for what they believed in. They laid a foundation that Luther, if it had not been for them, the Reformation would not have been nearly as successful as it was. And you sh also you should know, the Gutenberg Press, the invention of the printing press in the 1430s, that was, a, that was ancient Twitter, okay? And basically it gave Luther the chance to get his ideas in print and disseminated. That is another key. If Wycliffe had had the printer, uh, the, been able to copy things like that, it would have been a, a different story 100 years sooner. These guys laid down their life. Now, what does this have to do with us today? So each sermon in this series is going to stir up a little bit of history and then roll into what we, wanted, what we need to learn from it. And today I want to talk about the Bible, John Wycliffe's key focus, the Bible itself. Where's the, and I want to ask this question, where is the Bible in your life right now? How important is it to you? Do you believe it? How long has it been since you actually read it and thought about it? How long has it been since you read it to your children? What do you believe about it? And I think that's really important. I live in a world today that, that very much questions the authority of Scripture and, and doesn't believe it's true and thinks that people who do believe it are bigots and hate people. And those could not be farther from the truth, but that's the kind of ideas that are floating around there. And, and here's what you should know about me if you don't know this already, and you do if you come here some. Man, the Bible is my absolute. I love you, and there are a lot of, I love to read, and I love to hear great minds process things, but at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and all throughout the day, God's word is the absolute authority for my life, for my family, for my ministry, and my church. <clears throat> I did not come to that conclusion softly or lightly. I wrestled with it. And if you are, I, I don't want to intentionally harm or shake your faith unless it needs to be shaken. 
I believe faith needs to be earned in a way. Not, not like you have to go out and work for it, but you have to wrestle with the challenges that are presented in our world today. Sometimes we Christians come off as closed-minded nuts. We are nuts. I just don't want to be closed-minded about it, okay? I just want you to understand that there is reason to believe God's Word. A lot of what I hear today is fear from Christians. Fear that what they believe will not stand up to scrutiny. I think we need to state this. I think the church needs to hear that someone needs to just up and say what we're afraid of. Guys, God's Word will stand. And let me tell you this. If you'll take heed to this message today and get in God's Word and meet the God who wrote it, for that is its purpose, then you won't have to worry about questioning it anymore. So, where's the Bible belong in your life? And that's the conclusion. I start with that question, and that's where I want to conclude when we get to the end of this incredibly long message. There's me resetting your expectations. So how do we bring the Bible back in our lives and our world, and is that important? There's a prophet in the Old Testament named Amos. He's one of my favorites because Amos was a persimmon picker. How many of you would love that job, persimmon picking, I'm telling you? Um, he, God called him from his agricultural lifestyle and sent him to the Washington, D.C. of Israel and said, I want you to start correcting the king. Whoopee. It, it was not a fun ride. But this is one of, the verse, one of the scriptures that Amos states prophetically to the king. I believe it was Jeroboam at that time. And he said, the time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I don't know if you know how important the words of the Lord are, but... This is Amos, God through Amos, trying to help a nation see they can survive without a lot of things, but they need to hear from God. So the thing is, the nation of Israel listened, didn't listen, listened, didn't listen. And we're about to look real briefly at three kings, one who listened, one who didn't, and one who did. And on that third king, I'll just read the text for you just so as a way to dive into it. In 2 Kings 22, we read the end of the story. It says, Hilkiah, the high priest, sent Shaphan, the court secretary, said to him, said, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Uh, let me preface that by simply saying they had lost the Bible, okay? Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Then Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then he also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. This king is King Josiah. His great-granddaddy, his great-great-granddaddy was Hezekiah, who was a good king. Hezekiah had his faults, but he was a cool king. He built weapons of warfare like catapults and stuff like that. So that's kind of cool. But he loved God, and he tried to teach people about God, and people didn't really like him for it, but he still did it. Well, then Hezekiah had a son. His name was Manasseh. 
Manasseh wasn't that good a king at all. In fact, he was such a bad king, he kind of ruined it for everybody. He was like the brick that broke the camel's back. He lived how he wanted to. He rejected God. And this is when the word of God was lost. This is when the famine of hearing God's word hit because this king went totally wicked, did what he wanted almost all of his life. At the very end, Manasseh's story of redemption is kind of beautiful. But then he died, and for like a second, two years, which is a second eternally, his son Ammon ruled and... was king of Israel, but he followed in his father's footsteps, didn't turn out well, and he died, and then Josiah takes the throne at eight years old. Eight years old. At eight years old, he becomes the monarch and leader of a broken nation. Everything that can be wrong is wrong. Every problem you can have is there. And this eight-year-old boy is now the leader of God's people. What a, what a mess. And so Josiah had a good influence in his life, a priest. That priest influenced him for well, and he began to try in this youth to try and follow God. And after a few years, when he's in his mid-teens, he commissions that the temple be, is restored. And after a few more years in his mid-twenties, he really gets serious about the temple being restored. And that's when we encounter this passage. He'd already been on the throne for 15, 18 years at this point. He was trying to do right, but he didn't know what right was. They didn't have the word of the Lord. They didn't know right from wrong. He didn't know. It had been lost. And when you lose God's word, you lose your story. When you lose God's word, you lose your story. The nation of Israel lost God's word, and they lost who they were. They forgot their identity. They forgot everything about themselves. And here's this 8-year-old, 16-year-old, 25-year-old king trying to manage this disaster of a nation that had walked out on God. And so he asks Hilkiah, says, we got to get the temple fixed. we got to do what we can to bring this back. And it's in that repair job that the word of God was found. It started because a young king realized he was not able and worthy to do the job he had to do. And then the scroll was found, and then you see this amazing passage, this beautiful passage, as the scroll, the Bible, is read to Josiah, and it breaks him. There are amazing consequences for rejecting God, and the worst of that is to lose him. But then there are great blessings when we seek God. And when I think about the fact that when we, we turn from our ways and our own wisdom and our own knowledge and we start pursuing God again, it's like God has never left. Often, all we have to do to get out of a hole is stop digging <laughs> and turn back to our Father. I watched a movie this week. It was so good. It was called Mountaintop. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it. Um, there's an older gentleman in the film who tells people about his God dreams, and of course that will make people think you're insane. 
But throughout the film, and this was the most convicting part for me, he always referred to God as Papa. That convicted me. And he made this statement in the the film, one of the lines in the movie was, no human heart can contain Papa's love. God loved Josiah, and he loved that nation of Israel with all its mistakes and all its brokenness and all of its rejection. And when this young man realized and began to turn to God, he found that God was there for him, and the Word of God was found, and the famine of God's Word ended. Jeremiah said, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I um, I know a lot of, I, I don't know this, but I assume that some of you are looking for proof for your faith. I get that. I get it. I respect it. I think it is healthy to search and explore. I want you to know that the proof is there. It's always there. But it it will never be the proof you want. The proof of God, the proof of the authority of His Word, the proof of the purity of His Word, the proof of faith will always be just just a little past reason and rationality. It will always be in a realm that's, that's more than you can experience with those five senses you used to be reasonable with. I just want to tell you, though, as weird as that may sound, and I admit it sounds weird, when you turn to God, He turns, well, He's already looking at you. You probably turned around because He tapped you. <laughs> God's Word to me is one of the main strengths of finding Him, having relationship with Him. I think it takes root in a willing heart. Jesus told a story in Matthew and Mark about soils. Jesus talked about dirt. (laughs) And in the dirt story, He talked about a farmer going out to sow seed, and some fell on the road, and some was in the thorns, and some was in the rocks, and some landed in a prepared field. And then he says in Mark at the end of that, he says that, I, I said plant, oh no, I'm in Hosea, wrong passage. Mark, he says, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? Jesus is saying, my story about dirt is the most important story. You get this story, and all the other stories start to come together and make sense. So what's Jesus saying about the dirt? Well, let me go back to Hosea for a second. I had that on the screen. Hosea says, plant the good seeds of righteousness and you'll harvest a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts. This was Charles Finney's favorite verse. For now is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. Jesus talked to his disciples about, about a, the poss- of a soil being like a heart and a, and a heart being ready for God and open to God and prepared for God. And, and that's one of the things that the Word of God does is it, it breaks us up. It, it's, like, it's like Josiah sitting there on his throne, if you can envision this, and Hilkiah's coming, Shaphan's coming, they're reading the scroll, and then the, the, the king just melts into tears. He just begins to be, 
be destroyed by what he's hearing, be humbled by what he's hearing. This is what the word of God does. And, and so before I jump into what to do with God's word and how we can bring it back in our own lives, I wanna ask you this question. When's the last time that God's word melted you, humbled you, changed the way that you thought? God's word will take root in a heart that's prepared to hear it. And that's my heart today is to give us that idea that God's word is vital to our faith. I may say some pointed things. I never do that, but maybe I will today. There are about three ways we handle God's word, typically. Ah, oh, there's probably a hundred more, but just for today's sermons. Number one, we ignore it. So what? It's the Bible. The newest parts are 2,000 years old. How can that be relevant for me? So we ignore it. It doesn't speak to my culture today. The other way is we twist it. We live off the memes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes that means I can sin. Those are great scriptures. But to pull that scripture out of its context is to do it an amazing disservice. Because the guy who wrote it is in jail because he loves Jesus. That's a little tougher than making the rent or whatever that we use it about. I'm just saying the word of God's good, but don't twist it. So sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we twist it. But here's what we want to do today. Receive it. Just receive it. It's God's word. It's true. God's right, I'm wrong. That's how I like to say it to myself, okay? You tell me I'm wrong, I probably don't, I mean, yeah, it hurts my feelings, but that's no new thing. God's word tells me that all the time, okay? So let's take a few minutes and do, talk about four things we can do with God's word to, to turn our lives around, to bring the Bible back for us, to end the famine of God's word in our life. Because what you don't realize is that the famine of hearing God's word is what's wrecking you and what's giving you that isolation you're experiencing and that aloneness and that confusion and that frustration. So what can I do with God's word? How can I bring it back? So practically, be practical when I can. Give you four practices that are great for a Bible-guided life. Number one, prioritize the Bible. Make it, make it number one in your life. Make it important. You have to. You need to. You need this. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. If you don't know, like, you're like, I don't know if I agree with you, Pastor. That's, that's okay. Read Psalms 119 today. It's only 176 verses. That's right, 176 verses of David saying, I love the word, I love the word, I love the word. 176 times. Here's three of them. I lie in the dust, dust, revive me by your word. I weep with sorrow, encourage me by your word. Keep me from lying to myself. Say amen. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. This is a king of a nation. The, the, one of the biggest challenges we have with God's word in our country today is that no one actually reads it. 83% of America thinks the Bible's generally a good thing. 
But only half of them, actually less than half of them, have ever actually read any of it. Isn't that weird? I would love to know the actual church stats, but I, I kind of don't want to know. <laughs> Most people haven't actually read it. Less than half have, have read hardly any at all. The point is simply, oh, by the way, the number one reason that people don't read is this, I don't prioritize it. I know this graphic's a little small on the screen. I apologize for that. But the simple reality is God's word has to become important in my life. I gotta stop ah, to, to bring this home. We get hurt, we get offended, and where are we going, man? Running to Facebook for a little comfort? This morning, um, so I have a love-hate relationship with my phone. I love some of the things it does for me, and I hate other things. Like that phone call thing. Jeez, who does that with a phone? It's so weird. It's so confusing nowadays. You used to know what a phone was for, right? You walked in the kitchen, it was hanging on the wall, you had a three-foot radius. I know I'm not speaking to like 90% of you, but still. You went and you got phone calls. That was all it did. You didn't get up and start typing on it. That would, people would think you were crazy. 30 years ago, if you'd have walked in the kitchen and said, hey, one day you're going to be able to send typed messages to people on these. And your parents would have said, they would have gotten you help. They would have done that. And of course, help by then was a switch in a closet. But nonetheless, <laughs> methods have changed. So, so this morning, I'm like, uh, <clears throat> oops. So this morning I was walking around here, there were worshiping, and all of a sudden my phone goes off. And I'm like, what in the world? And I look down and my phone is telling me how much I'm using my phone. This is some new iOS feature. I'm like, this is great. Make me look at my phone to tell me I'm using my phone too much. Thank you. <laughs> so I go into my notifications. It's one of those automatic things that happens when you update. You know how Apple is. They're like, no, we want your life back. No, and I'm trying to take it back all the time. And uh, so I go back and turn off the notifications. But it just dawned on me, that's just how they make us addicted to our toys, you know? This is how we live our life. We need to transition that addiction. We need to stop running to this little smart device that's really stupid when we have needs, when we're hurting, when others need help, when we're happy. So at least put a Bible on your phone and access it there. You version is great, and all of our sermons are on there, by the way. And it will read it to you, because some of us are lazy, like me. <laughs> My point is, we have to make God's Word important in our life. That's all I'm saying. It has to be a priority. We have to make it a priority, and then Jesus told us to search it. To search it. What did he mean? So he said this to the Pharisees in John 5. He said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. Interesting. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The Bible is full of all kinds of cool knowledge. Okay, It's been proven archaeologically stable and reliable, reliable. It's been proven so many ways to be reliable. It's full of so much cool intelligence. It is a great book to study, to learn cool stuff. But there's a proverb that says, knowledge, this is out of the King James, forgive me, knowledge puffeth up. Puffeth up. That's a King James word. Knowledge makes you boast, makes you proud. The problem is, when you're proud, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so we come to God's word, and, and we're just trying to get this 
filled up, we miss the main point. The point is not knowledge. Although all the knowledge in it is correct, the point is Jesus. It will always be Jesus. The point is relationship. The point is connecting with the divine. That's what this is about. And so Jesus says, man, you search the scriptures because in them you're going to find me. So this is how it works. The word of God is um, two Greek words I'm going to teach you real quick. Logos, but I'm so not used to this stuff being in my way, so I'm going to move it because I'm about to trip over a microphone and it's going to hurt, but it'll make a great video. Two Greek words, logos and rhema. Logos is the, the written word of God. So when I open my Bible, I'm reading the written word of God. That's good. God will never disagree with himself. He is the only consistent being in the, all, the whole universe. Okay, Although you're not as smart as he is, so you're going to think in places that he's confusing himself. Like God's an old man, doesn't know what's going on. But as you read this word, you're reading the written word of God. That's powerful. Reading the written word of God, you are going to come to understand what God's like. If you will read it and read it and think about it and pray on it, you can read the Old Testament, and one day, if you take enough time, you will realize that, that, God, that the God of the Old Testament was not a jerk. That he was a loving God relating to man on man's terms for many reasons. And then, of course, we all like the God of the New Testament because we think he's cool and we only read selected passages. <laughs> That's helpful. Back, like I said, twisting God's word. So there's the written word, spoken word. I mean the logos. But then there's rhema, the spoken word. Which when Paul writes in Romans 10, he says, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's, he uses the word rhema, not logos. He's, it's the word I hear now. The written word brings me into the presence of God to hear and meet Jesus Christ. Jesus is perfect theology. Men will always twist the Bible to meet their needs. We do it ourselves. We do it ourselves. Jesus is the only truth. He's the only exegesis, explanation of this truth. And so when we search the Bible, we're not trying to get smarter. We are waiting for an encounter. Does that make sense? I want to challenge your faith to become an encounter kind of faith. I want it founded intellectually and reasonably, yes. I love the Reformation. I'm so thankful for what those guys did. But in this series, we're not only going to cover the Reformation. Next week, we jump, we jump into the first great awakening, and then the second, and then the businessman's revival of the 1850s. It's a kick. I love what God has done. But every awakening woke up the church a little bit more. And I wish I had time to do this for like eight weeks so we could get into the charismatic revivals of the early 1900s and the evangelism explosions of the 50s. Those were a lot of fun. But I figure you only take so much history, so I'm only doing four. Prioritize the Bible. Search the Bible. Oh, i got to read you this Hebrews passage because it's awesome. If this doesn't mess with your faith, I don't know what, how to do it. <laughs> God's Word says in Hebrews 12, 25, Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. 
You've got a way to line, underline that. You need to. This is an amazing verse. For if the people of Israel who did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Yeah. Do you understand what this scripture is saying? God is talking to you. He is talking to you. I know some of you are sitting there going, well, I, I'm struggling hearing from God. The problem is not on his end. You understand this? It's not on his end. It's on your end. You're not receiving. That's why the word of God, we can't ignore it. We can't twist it. We have to receive it. And God is speaking, and that's where the written word of God comes in. As I read it, it challenges the way I think. It challenges my heart. It lifts me up. Like David said, I was in the dust, and your word revived me. God's word does all of this for me. And it can do all of that for you. Stop reading it like a textbook. Read it, oh man, I hate to say like a love letter, because that's not fair either. Because God doesn't, sometimes he writes pretty, yeah, Song of Solomon. Ooh, anyway, that's freaky. But, um, but it, it's a letter about relationships. It's like, know me. I want to know, I know you. I want you to know me. That's, and so this is this conversation that the word of God founds. But God is speaking. So we, we search the Bible to encounter God. Third, practice the Bible. Man, you read it and don't do what it says. To quote James, and, and very loosely, that's stupid. <laughs> do what it says. Paul, he, James says this, don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. That's why I love the NLT right there. But if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and forget what you look like. That's what happens when we don't practice it. I don't know about you, but I'm really hands-on. I got to do stuff. So like, if I'm learning how to do something, I got to break it first and so fix it. Then I will learn how to do it. Anybody else that way? Give me an All the guys. Go ahead. That's right. <laughs> the mechanic. Yeah, break it first. So I'm... Okay. I just got really nervous, but no, I'm just kidding. And so it's the same way with God's word. I, I read it, and it, you know, it, it says challenging things like love your enemies. Yeah, right. But my boss is a jerk. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And, and we read that and go, well, that's too big for me. That's too hard for me. Like, a, like an eight-year-old Josiah looking at his kingdom going, I, I can't do this. But James says, don't worry about what you can do. Step off into what God says. That's, that's the whole point of Peter walking on the water, by the way. Jesus invites you on the sea. You go, even if it doesn't make sense. Did that make some of you guys nervous? Sometimes Jesus invites us into things that don't make sense. Okay, We don't go because things make sense. We go because the greatest most awesome Savior in history invited us on a journey. So we practice the Bible. And if I could just throw this out there, parents of any age, your kids will not live what you tell them. They will live what you show them. You know that, right? You kids in the room, a lot of things you do in your life, you do because your parents did them, even if you hated what their, your parents were doing. Our mind is made to gravitate toward what we think about, and if we think about the bad things that happen to us, we do those things. It's been proven. And so I just want to say to you as parents, practice God's word, practice it in your home. Okay, so let me put this really pointed for you. You can't spend every day of the week teaching your children 
that everything else is literally more important in the world than their faith, and then be surprised when they walk away from it as adults. Okay? Yeah, I know that was pointed. If it will help one family step up and say, we got to make God's Word important in our house, then it's worth whatever flack I get. Okay? Because I'm not talking about surviving when I talk about the Bible. I'm not talking about just, uh, just going to church and be religious. I'm talking about coming alive. This book is the book of life, man. This book tells you not just how to live, but it actually infuses you with living. It is the living Word of God. And although the actual words do not change, the voice that speaks into our life is ever alive, ever growing, ever maturing. Practice the Bible, and then third, lastly, share the Bible. Never keep with you what God gives to you. Share it with others. We live in a world that's become more and more isolated. Our relationships are more and more shallow. The studies are coming in. The millennial generation is turning away from social media in groves right now. I, it's blowing my mind. Because the, the fake connection is not helpful. We are meant to live life in circles, my wife said one Sunday, with people. We need help, and we need more than just, I'm fine, you're fine, we're, we're all fine, and we'll just be fine together. No, we need more of I'm a wreck, you're a wreck, but Jesus is cool, so let's hang with him. Amen. We need to learn to share that journey. So here's what I'm challenging you to do. I'm challenging you, one, to make the Word of God important in your life. Really important. Stop, stop wondering about what the next big guy on a pedestal thinks and ask God what he thinks. Go to his Word and see what he's done and roll with that. Don't use it to be judgmental with people. But rather, use it, <coughs> take it, and give it. Learn it yourself and share it with other people. As we share things, what I love about God things is that the more you give them away, the more they grow, the more you have. The more of God's word you share, the more you're going to understand. I can't tell you the times I've stumbled across God's word and actually been wrong, like misunderstood the text and went to share it with one of my very honest friends, because I like honest friends. And they helped me see, and they encouraged, and together we grew. Sometimes God puts people in our lives, by the way, to challenge us and to make us think. I had a pastor one time I absolutely got, I got really furious with for about three or four months because he made me wrestle with the doctrine of election. I didn't want to. And in that wrestling, and there was a time there, I really wanted to, to, to do bad things, but I didn't. <clears throat> this God is good. So share that Bible with each other. So here's the thing today. I just want to ask you, what, what do you want to do with your Bible? The point of this series, the Game Changer series, is not just to give you information or whatever. My heart, I think God has been tuning us up for a long time for some kind of spiritual awakening. People are waking up. People are more and more realizing that there's a lot more to this life than the stuff they can see, touch, and feel. 
And so God wakes people up. And the point, as I go through this series, I, I, begin, I realize things that happen historically, and I want them to happen again. One of them's prayer. So as you read God's word, you're going to encounter these things about prayer. And so you believers in the room who are there, and you trust, I'm going to ask you to join me through this series and pray. One of the reasons Pastor Dave Limmer's coming, he's from, he planted a, the Restoration Church in Casper, uh, right now, he's got an international ministry around the world. The reason he's coming is to help us, one, better pray for each other, teach us how to encounter Holy Spirit actually in prayer and, and help people connect, and also to just call us up to revival. But that won't happen if we don't seek God. So today I've laid a foundation of God's word because everything I talk about comes from here. My whole life comes from this word, this book. I'm pointing at my phone, but there's a Bible on it, 30 of them actually, so it's all good. But as you, I want to challenge you to, do, to take God's word, begin to let it stir out the corruption, the brokenness, the guilt, the shame, the aloneness. I know that's not a word, but... It works so well, I like to use it. <laughs> and let God's precious word begin to stir you, call you into his presence. Experience God's Papa love. This word will call you in. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 6 out of the ESV. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, shall be satisfied. And John said this, or Jesus said this, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. I think that's living, by the way. Living isn't getting through your day and getting lots of stuff done. Living is living in such a way that out of you is flowing life. And you are giving life to people. Man, I love this room. So today we're concluding, and, and as we conclude, we're going to enter into a season of communion. Jesus said, man, about communion, if we went to John 6, he said, whoever eats my body and drinks my blood, that's the one who has a part in me. It's a very disturbing text, I know. But he was talking about this, what we're about to do. And as we talk about God's word, to me, the word connects with the bread of life because there was a prophet in the Old Testament who said, your words were found and I ate them. I consumed them. I, and they impacted me. I can't remember the rest of the text, but it was amazing what God's word did. So today we're gonna have communion together and there's a wafer there. And what we do, by the way, here's the, here's the mechanics. We come down the center aisles. We go back to our seats around the outside, come back in down the center and sit down. Okay? Because we're gonna have communion and then the worship team is going to take us into God's presence one last time together today. By the way, you're welcome to just get together and spend all day in God's presence. That's cool, but our worship team has to eat lunch at some point. So, so we'll come down, take communion together. When you are at the table or when you're with your family, what my family does, we take communion together and then we go off and pray for each other real quick. As you do that, I want you to pick up that wafer and, and remember, Jesus said, my body the prophet said, your words are found, and I ate them. It symbolizes being sustained by Jesus Christ. 
And that's what I want you to connect with God's word, how it sustains us, how it is a, a continual option of communion for us. And then as you dip it in the, the wine, which is non-alcoholic, because we knew we couldn't handle you guys if it were any other way, and you take that, you're remembering what Jesus did for you. Today I want to add another color to that, though. I want you to remember how much it cost to get God's word to you. It took a cross, and it took thousands of people laying down their lives to get God's word into your hands because they knew that this book would change the world. The foundation of a game changer is God's word. Father, we're about to remember. This whole month is about remembering. I guess part of me and the reformers would applaud <laughs> taking a moment to remember what we are not worthy of. <laughs> but also to remember that you paid for the right to make us worthy. Lord, I pray that as we come to this communion table, that one, we hold no grudge against anyone. Any secret sin in our life, we immediately confess to you. And we come before you worthy, not because our actions are great, but because our Lord and Savior died for our worth and determined our value in the death of God upon a cross. So Lord, we ask that you would humble us in that and then embrace us in that. And then Lord, I pray in context of this message that God's word would fill this body. That God's written word would challenge our minds and our lives and that God's spoken word would call us out and up. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand together.